says go live. Yeah, that's it. Do you live stream this? Yes. Mine. Monday and Sunday. He did it. That's good. Bismillah. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Alhamdulillah. Salatu wassalamu ala rasulillah wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa man wala. Allahumma salli wa sallam wa zil wa barik ala sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. Allahumma iftah alayna bi hikmatik wa anshur alayna bi rahmatik ya ala jannani wa ikram. Ya alimu alimna min ilmika ma tarda bihi anna wa la tuakhidna bima ta'alamuhu minna. Ya halimu khaliqna bi khuliqin hilmu haqiqna bi haqaqin ilm. Subhanaka la ilmana la illa ma alamtana innaka anta alimun hakeem. Wa sallallahu wa sallam ala sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. We left off in the ihya on page 138. On the comportment incumbent upon the student and the teacher. Correct? Mm -hmm. So basically, this section, Qalil Musannifu Rahimahullahu Ta'ala wa Nafanullahu Yahu Bi'alumihi Fiddarin Amin. That's a cool shirt. Caught me in the middle of the dua. So, Safiya's shirt. MashaAllah. Says, with regard to the student, his incumbent conduct and responsibilities are numerous. Their varying aspects may be categorized under ten headings. So in this section, he's going to give ten etiquettes for the student in relation to their teacher. Uh, you know, before we read them, it's important to note that uh, everyone here, assalamu alaikum, we're, we're all students. And I don't really qualify as a teacher. We're just studying together. So we're all students. And so if you see something here that seems kind of like very severe, and you're thinking, and it feels even more severe because you're thinking about me, just remember that we're just placeholders for the people who actually sit in these chairs with do right, okay? So first responsibility of the student. Thank you so much, Barakallahu Seeking uh, the first responsibility of the student is to give precedence to purifying his soul from reprehensible character traits and blameworthy qualities. So he's really this is the point. This is Ghazali. You know, Ghazali is gonna hit you over the head with the same stuff until it gets through to your, through your head and into your heart. It's gonna keep telling you over and over again. You know. So the first responsibility is they give precedent to purifying their soul from blameworthy qualities and reprehensible character. He says, seeking knowledge is the worship of the heart the prayer of the innermost mystery and the inward intimacy with God. Just as the prayer that is a responsibility of the outward bodily limbs is only valid when performed in a state of outward purity from, the section, uh, from impurities, likewise inward devotion and nurturing the heart with knowledge is only valid when it is purified of offensive character traits and nauseous qualities. And then he said the Prophet ﷺ said the religion was founded upon cleanliness. So the religion, cleanliness is part of religion. So what is he saying? He's saying when you go into prayer, there's certain things you have to purify. Right? You have to purify your external body in some sort of way. You have to purify the place that you're praying in. You have to face in the right direction. There's conditions and you go about your prayer. And he's saying that when you seek knowledge, seeking knowledge is the worship of the heart. So the prayer is the worship of the body and knowledge is the worship of the heart. So if I'm going to do the, no the worship of the heart, then I have to go through some level of purifying the heart in order to be uh, to engage with that properly. <coughs> so these are the inward qualities then that are imperative for the person to uh, be aware of. So then he goes into this whole conversation about how uh, the Prophet ﷺ said that the angels don't enter a house where there is a dog. Uh, 
and um, then he starts to talk about how like when you have these negative inner qualities these qualities then become barriers that prohibit benefit you know so like if you imagine your heart as your house when you have impure things in your house then the benefit of knowledge can't come into your heart whereas just like if you have this impure dog in your house then it it prevents the angels from coming into your house and he makes this little side point that's important but interesting he says uh, he says I'm not saying that the meaning of the he says I'm not saying that the in uh, the meaning of the word house is the heart or the dog is anger or these type of things right so what he's what he's trying to get at is he's saying there's a narration the Prophet them is saying the angels don't enter the house if there's a dog in it saying this is the meaning of the narration this is the meaning of the narration and one of the things that we can glean from it is you know we can make a similitude by like the heart and so on and so forth while recognizing that the actual outward meaning of the text is still true and why he's saying this is because one of the he, he makes a side point against one of the sects in Muslim history that he was uh, he spoke about a, a lot um, against them which is called the Batiniya the Batiniya are like people who were so took the whole inward meaning of text so far that they negated the outward meaning so the way of Ahl Sunnah wal Jama'ah is basically what? Is that there's the outward meaning of the text and we recognize and we affirm the outward meaning of the text. And there's possibly inward meanings of the text that can be understood within the confines of language or within the confines of rhetoric and linguistic usages and so on. And we use both of them. And the, the heterics on both sides, on the two other sides, don't do that. So one, one, one extreme would be you only take the outward meaning of the text and you don't allow for any sort of rhetorical understanding of the meaning, right? It's just, it has to be this and it can't be anything else and it has to be completely exactly how it is. In an hukmu illa lillah. This is the first problem in Muslim civilization, right? In an hukmu illa lillah. They said the khawarij, they said the, the rule, judgment is only for Allah. Judgment is only for Allah. So... When, when Sayyidina Ali radiallahu an like has an arbiter in the whole situation that's coming they're basically going to make takfir on him because now he's choosing a, someone to rule other than Allah and they're saying so uh, look what kind of nonsense this is right extreme literal interpretation so like if you have a problem with someone else and you get someone to help you now you're a kafir because you're taking a ruling from this third person instead of from God this is extreme textual like, and it's actually wrong even on a textual level because it doesn't consider the other verses and so on and so forth so that's one extreme and then the other extreme is you know saying that uh, you know anything like take any verse and just you know the dog is in front of the cave in Surat Al-Kaf and you say well that dog is not actually a dog that's like the anger that was in the hearts of the people when they fled from the oppressor and then like that's what the dog actually is is the anger like okay, but it's Allah said it's a dog. <laughs> like you know, if Allah said it's a dog, generally like we believe it's a dog, right? So this is you see the point. There's two extremes here, and the way of the the middle way of Muslim scholarship is to uh, affirm the outward meaning while allowing for inward meanings within the realm of uh, reasonable uh, flexibility in the language, not not taking it too far, or saying like this is not in the language. What are you saying here? There's a dog in the house and. He's not saying this is actually, he's just saying this is like a, 
you know, we can take this benefit from it. It's not actually what's in the text, right? In any case, he's saying you have to uh, reflect on the heart. So reflect on the house, which is a human edifice, in relation to the heart, which is a house among the edifices of God. I said, uh, like, this is the house that you build, and your heart is the gift from Allah. So that heart, when you purify it and you get rid of all of this anger, that's like uh, the dog. And Imam Ghazali talks about this imagery of like, when a person is overcome with anger, then they have, a, they have like an idol of a dog in their heart. And it's taking up space in their heart. And the person who's overcome with appetites and desires and so on, they have like an idol of a pig in their heart. And so he uses this imagery. So uh, uh, in any case, you purify the inside, and that's uh, part of the whole process of learning. So he says, don't be, and don't be foolish. And from everything else we've covered, you already know. And he says, don't be the foolish person who says, but I've seen people who don't have good character, and they have bad qualities, and they have this and this and this, but they still have knowledge. And then he says, like, you know, basically, didn't we just spend... <laughs> 200 pages like <laughs> saying that that's not what knowledge is right like being able to memorize things is is not knowledge being able to memorize things is just memorizing things and then he brings some more nice quotes about uh, from early people like Ibn Mas'ud the great companion of the Prophet وسلم, who said knowledge is not a question of quantity of narrations one cites it is a light cast into the heart so knowledge is not an issue of the narrations and the the information that the person has memorized. And knowledge is a question of the light in their heart. Ibn Mas'ud. Malik said the same thing. Shafi says the same thing. It's, you know, established. Like I mentioned before. When you spend, there are things when you spend time, like a long time with the tradition, there are things that repeat themselves at every single layer of the whole thing. It's, that's why it's ilmun it's mawruf. Our knowledge is an inherited knowledge, as, uh, as Sheikh Walid was saying on uh, Saturday, Hafidhullah, that the knowledge of the religion is an inherited knowledge. It's not experiential. It's not like experimental knowledge. It's not like medicine or science or something where you, you, you experiment and you observe and you figure out what works best and so on. So that's not what religion is. Religion is inherited. So when we, when we read and you read and you read, you'll see like the same themes will repeat themselves. Ibn Mas'ud said that. We saw before Malik said that, Shafi'i said that, this idea of knowledge being light that's in the heart and not just a matter of how much information the person knows. <coughs> so that's number one. Pay attention to the purification of the heart. Number two, second responsibility of the student. Mm. This one's a little bit harsh. Maya. Number two is uh, to diminish his ties with mundane occupations and distance himself from family and homeland. <laughs> diminish his ties with mundane occupations and distance himself from family and homeland. Simplest example of this is what? Everything, when we talk about religion, everyone gets all nervous about it. But let's just be very practical. If someone goes to undergrad and they want to become a physician, they work really hard to become a physician. Where are they going to go to med school? Where they get in, right? <laughs> like with the best school that they can get into, that's where they're going to go for the vast majority of cases. And if somehow, some way, their med school happens to be close to their home, when they finish med school and they apply for residency, where are they going to go? Eventually, they're going to go away. 
Eventually, they're going to be away from family. They're going to be away from their home. And if they are at, fa at home physically, they will not be at home mentally because they, there's a certain level of distance that's required from family and home and occupations and all of these things that is necessary in order for the person to learn. Um, and this, again, is what Shafi'i said. Radiallahu uh, Shafi'i said something along the lines of uh, You won't see, my brother, you won't attain knowledge except through six. I'm going to tell you about them. What they're, you know, I'll tell you what they are. Um, and he says, I don't remember all of them. Hirsun wa dakaun wa bulgha wa tulu zamanun wa suhbatu ustadin. I think that's five, but basically he mentions all of these ones. Like you're going to have to work hard, and you're going to have to be intelligent, and you're going to have to sacrifice, and it's going to take you a long time. And you're going to, one of them is ghurba. You're going to be away from your family and your friends, and you're going to have to have a good teacher. These are the things that you're going to need if you want to actually learn, right? And we're not talking about like, obviously you come to some lessons and stuff like that, that's fine. But someone who's like a, a serious student of, of religious sciences, that's what they're supposed to do. That's why the, the whole thing of like traveling to seek knowledge is an established practice of Islamic learning. It's uh, from the very beginning, right? From the time of the Prophet them. And the companions, there, is compan there are companions who traveled to far off lands for one narration. Uh, like, say so I traveled from Medina all the way to Egypt. So he got to the, he got to the borders of Egypt and they, they asked him like, okay, you know, they welcomed him. This great companion is here, welcome, so on and so forth. And he met the person that he was looking for. He said, I heard that you have this narration from the Prophet them that he said such and such. Can you tell me it? And he told him the hadith. And he's like, Jazakallah. He turned around and went back. It's the whole trip. The whole trip is for the one hadith. right? And actually, on uh, when we did the hadith musalsam for uh, Ashura um, a couple weeks ago, some of the videos that I was listening to about that, some of the shiyukh that, like not the one that, I heard it from the one that he heard it from when he was talking about it in one of his videos he was saying that he traveled specifically to the Shaykh outside of Cairo on the day of Ashura in order to get to get the hadith on the day of Ashura and to be considered from the people who traveled just for one hadith like to be from that category of people right so this is this is what it is I, t I think I, I think I mentioned before that they say that you're not a student of knowledge until you miss the uh, until you miss the janazah of your family members like you have family members who pass away and you can't attend. You don't even know. You sh I mean, in the old days, you wouldn't even know, right? And now you just can't attend. Um, there was a brother like that. His name was Shafaqat from the people that was in Egypt. May Allah preserve him. I don't know what he's doing or what, where he's at now. But he was from Pakistan, like in a small place in Pakistan. And his family sent him to Egypt and they were, he was studying and... While he was gone one year, he could only go to visit so often, every so often, you know, he can't just like go every year or something, they're not rich people. So, uh, eventually his father passed away while he was studying. And his family decided they're not going to tell him, because like, what's the point in telling him? It's going to distract from his studies, he's not going to be able to focus, he doesn't have the money to come back. So like, we're just not going to tell him. 
So eventually he said, you know, it came time to go for vacation. And he went to, he flew back and he came and he got to the train station and his family was there to pick him up and he saw his dad wasn't there. So he knew, you know, it was enough. Like he knew then. So then they took him straight to the graveyard and he made dua for him and so on and so forth. Right? This is what he's saying. You have to be away from these things. You have to be away from mundane occupations. Of course, one can seek, seek whatever you can from knowledge. But understand that these things, like someone who went and they traveled and they cut themselves off from everything, is different from someone who, you know, did a couple hours and then spent time with their family and so on. Like, it's just in the end, it's an issue of time. How much time did you put in, and how focused were you in that time? If you're cut off from these things, then you know, it it the consequence is different. So he's saying that this is one ties and relationships are things that preoccupy one and distract them from their goal. And they used to say, they always say this in Egypt, it's like, he, he says it here, it's one of the favorite things that everyone says. That knowledge won't give you some of itself until you give it all of yourself. You have to give it all of yourself and it'll give you some of it. <laughs> you get some, but if you're not going to give it everything, you're not going to get anything. Uh, this is the edit, you know, like I said, don't think about this like, oh no, I should just go home now and we can't learn, we can't benefit anything. And so that's not the point. The point is to understand that like, this is how we look at learning. That learning is something that's very serious. The studying religion is something that's very serious. It's not just like an entertainment session. And if, if the person entertained you the right way, then you're happy about it. If they didn't, then you're not happy about it and this kind of stuff. That's complete nonsense. That's actually making light of the religion itself. You know, if if we look at it that way, because it's not it's like it's supposed to be knowledge. Like this is supposed to be knowledge of what God and His Messenger want from humanity. <laughs> it's not supposed to be like, you know, something that makes you like it, it doesn't work that way. Like, I mean, yeah, sometimes it'll make you feel good. Sometimes it won't. Sometimes you're going to be tired. Sometimes whatever. But like, you know, you tell people that all the time when they go to study. Because it's like, you think that you're just going to go to study, it's going to be like roses and flowers and stuff. It's going to be 10 hours a day studying Arabic grammar. And you're going to be really frustrated. And you're not going to feel any spirituality. You're not going to feel anything. Because you're just like, you know, doing your work. to the way it is. Uh, no pain, no gain. <laughs> the third responsibility of the student is that he not conduct himself or herself in an arrogant manner toward knowledge, nor dominate the teacher. On the contrary, he should place the reins of every aspect of his affair in his teacher's hands completely. Submit to his good counsel in the manner that an illiterate patient would put himself in the hands of a compassionate, well-versed physician. <coughs> it is incumbent... I'm going to come back to this and tell you a story. It is incumbent on him to show humility toward his teacher and seek God's pleasure and distinction in his service, a shabi related Zayd ibn Thabit performed the funeral prayer and his mule was brought to him so he could mount it. Ibn Abbas radiallahu anhumah came and held his stirrup whereupon Zayd spoke. So Zayd ibn Thabit and Ibn Abbas, two great scholars from the companions. They're not, they're big people. Two, both of them were big scholars from the companions. Then Zayd spoke saying, Leave it be, O cousin of the Messenger of God. Ibn Abbas is the cousin of the Messenger of God, sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And Ibn Abbas said, this is how we were told to treat scholars and the venerable. So Ibn Abbas, who himself is a person of knowledge, is treating uh, Zayd this way because he's someone that he benefits from, right? 
So then it says, Zayd ibn Thabit kissed ibn Abbas's hand and he said, this is how we were told to treat the people of the Prophet's household. So uh, ibn Abbas said, This is how we were commanded to interact with our scholars. And Zayd then took his hand and he kissed his hand. He said, It's very beautiful. Allahumma salli ala Sayyidina Muhammad. He says this line of poetry, they like to quote it all the time. Knowledge is at war with the young and arrogant, just as a flood is at war with high ground. Think about it, right? So if water is running, what does it do to the if it if it faces high ground? The water if it leaves the high ground, right? So knowledge does that with arrogance. Arrogance and uh, the young and the arrogant. People who think they know better, right? They think they know better. So what do they end up with in the end? They don't end up with that much. So I'll tell you a humiliating story for the sake of <laughs> emphasizing the point. So a lot of the time that we were studying in, in Egypt, we were your typical American students who think that they know better and um, don't want to submit to a system that is well vetted and established, right? Like there's this, there's this little line that I really like on this video. Um, I won't get into the details because I don't want to derail it, but basically they're taking the sheikh and a tour of uh, Qarawiyin in Morocco and they have the chair, you know and the guy's telling the sheikh, he tells them the teachers, they still sit on the chair and they read the text line by line and they explain it and the students go through everything word by word, right? and the sheikh's only response was that this is a method that has been tried and true it's produced many scholars generation upon generation like yeah, people think, oh that's a old school model it doesn't, you know we should use more recent technology and all these kind of... That model produced generations and generations and generations of really highly qualified scholars. So yeah, maybe you had like, you know, classrooms with iPads that... Well, we didn't have that, but now people have that. iPads that stream to TVs and like all these kind of things. It doesn't mean that you know any better. So, but we thought we knew better, you know. And it's like... Well, you know, it doesn't make sense. I'm going to be critical about everything. I'm going to question everything. I'm not just going to accept it because, you know, I have a brain too and all of these kind of things, right? <laughs> so they tell you that you should read the text and you should memorize it. And I'm, like, I'm not going to memorize it, but I'm going to memorize it for. I'm going to go back to America. I have my phone. I can just look up whatever I want, you know? like <laughs> <laughs> That's how you generally look at it, right? <laughs> so I was like... <laughs> and, and then there was a brother who came towards the end of the time that we were there. And he was a new student. He had just come. And we were sitting and we were talking and we were talking about learning. And he was asking questions about what are you guys going to do and this and that. And what have you been doing and everything else. And we were having this conversation. And we're like, so what are you up to? <coughs> he's like, I have the sheikh from Dar al-Iftah. And we're studying the basic text. And he's making me memorize the whole thing. And I was like, and you're going to do that? <laughs> you know? <laughs> Think about like the voice of shaitan. In the whole situation, <laughs> like Sahib Asu, like the bad friend who tells you not to do what you're supposed to do. He's like, you're gonna do that. He's like, yeah, I'm gonna do that. He knows better. And like five, six, seven, eight, probably I don't know how many years later we're now. That was probably like seven, eight years ago. You know, Mashallah, the brother's very strong, very, very strong, and you know, other people still fumbling with information. Trying to get everything straight. And that's the way it goes. But this stuff is there. It's right there in the book. 
Why, why do you listen to the teacher? Because the teacher knows. Like if, if you're going to someone, otherwise don't go to them. Either you trust them or you don't. If you don't trust them, then, you know, fig go through your period of figuring out whether or not you can trust them. And if you, and if you, you know, if you don't, then you don't. But this is the method that was used. So it says, turn it over to your teacher. These kind of people are hard to follow, find now. But like, an example of this for, and like even modern situations would be something like, uh, you know, you have curriculums in schools. Like as critical as I am of the institution of an Azhar as the university and so on and so forth, the curriculum is good. The curriculum is put there by serious ulama, and they put down a curriculum that they thought was going to be beneficial to the students. And if you follow the curriculum and you learn what's there, then you're going to benefit. They they told you study this, then study this, then study this, right? So to be humble enough to be able to do that. <coughs> In some, look, he goes on to all these things. He gives you all these examples. I don't want to read every single word with everyone. You can read it. He has a big text. So he says. Uh, tells the story of Musa and Khadr, which is one of my favorite stories in the whole Qur'an. It's such a profound story. Um, the relationship of the student and the teacher and the things that you know and the things that you don't know and still still the responsibility to act with whatever you do know and like there's so much in the story. Um, and then he says, in sum, judge every student who persists in holding to his own opinions and preferences beyond the teacher's preferences for them, a failure and a lost cause. <laughs> That's the summary. <laughs> every student who thinks they know better, just think, that, you know, just assume that they're going to be lost. <laughs> like I said, we're all students here. I'm not, I'm not in the position to tell someone you should study this and you shouldn't study this and so on. Fourth responsibility is for anyone who immerses himself in the pursuit of knowledge to be wary in the beginning of lending an ear to discussions dealing with divergent opinions among the people, whether he is pursuing the fields of knowledge of this world or the knowledge of the abode of the hereafter. So it doesn't matter which one you're talking about, but if it's worldly knowledge, if it's religious knowledge, if it's whatever it might be, in the beginning you have to learn what's known. Then after that you can learn the things that are debated. But if you start in the beginning by just learning, and this is again one of the things that Western students generally do, and one of the reasons we do it is because oftentimes we're coming into the game late. So we go, if we go back to the same brother who was uh, from Pakistan, you know, you come in and you take your test. To, to go to the Azhar College, you have to graduate the high school. So you, you learn Arabic. Then you prepare for your entrance exam. Entrance exam is 10 subjects. So you have to cover middle school and high school curriculum, and then you get ready. Hopefully you get into the last year of high school. If you get into the last year of high school, you get in like halfway through the year. So now you're trying to catch up and finish everything else. You finish, and then you're in the college. Now you're in the college. Okay, You're in the college, and if you're in Sharia, your madhab, say your Hanafi, the text that you're going to study in your madhab is in, in Hidayah, which is an advanced level text. You're generally supposed that if you were in the Azhar system from childhood, you would have gone through Nur al-Idah, which is well known here. People, you know, it's like an intro Hanafi text. And then you would have gone through Quduri. Then you would have gone through the commentary in Quduri. Then you would have gone through Al-Mukhtar. And you would have gone through the commentary in Ikhtiyar, which is now like a mid-level text. And then in high school, and then you get to college and you're in Hidayah. So everything's fine. And then you do comparative at the same time. And it's okay because you already know your madhab. What do you do when you're late to the game? The brother from Pakistan, in, in their childhood, they memorized Matnan Quduri. So he came to the, he came, memorized Quduri. Quduri is crazy text to memorize. It's not like one of these, 
Some of the other madhabs, they have small intro text. The Hanafi school, <laughs> nothing's easy. <laughs> like even the intro text is so long. Like I can't even, I don't know how many issues are in the text. Like easily thousands of issues in, in the text. You memorize it. So, but what happens then, you come in, you're like, okay. So, and also, we come from communities that are diverse. So for a, in the end, we know that one opinion isn't sufficient. And you're going to be in a community in America To know one opinion isn't sufficient You have to know all the opinions So you're like I just want to learn all of them So you don't remember anything Because <laughs> you don't have any foundation It's too much at once Like you can't We, we had issues and like in, uh, I remember the issue I don't remember what the issue was I don't remember the opinions Anything I just remember reading things Like in financial law, Economic law and stuff Be like on this issue There's eight opinions these ones said the Shafi said this, Hanafi said this, uh, Jafari. Sometimes they bring the Shia schools. Shia one said this, and this one, and this, so this, so this is like eight opinions. How are you going to remember eight opinions? You remember for the exam. <laughs> then after that, it's done. <laughs> Just like here. All right, so this is, this is what he's saying. If you're immersing yourself in the pursuit of knowledge, don't listen to all the difference of opinion in the beginning. Get your foundation in the beginning. He says in the bottom of this page, he talks about converts. I, I cannot believe that this statement is here. Imam al-Ghazali died in 505 after Hijra. 505 after Hijra. Prohibiting the student in the beginning of his path from delving into obscure matters of jurisprudence is similar to prohibiting a recent convert to Islam from association with disbelievers. I was saying, someone just becomes a Muslim, then you want them to stay away. It doesn't necessarily mean that you have to do that, but that's what they did apparently. You want to stay away from certain types of people because they're going to pull you back into an alternative lifestyle. Right? And they're going to get you confused. So you stay and you focus on the thing, that you focus on the one thing that you're doing and you stay there. Right? So he's a, he's th I just think it's interesting. He's talking about recent converts to Islam. <coughs> that's number four. Number five. Their fifth responsibility is for the student in pursuit of the sciences to not leave a single aspect of the study of the praiseworthy sciences or any branch of them without giving them careful consideration in order to apprise himself of its significance and purpose. <coughs> then if he is blessed with a long life, he can seek to delve deeply into it. Otherwise, he should first occupy himself with the most essential areas among them and acquire a comprehensive view therein and study the remainder peripherally for the sciences complement and are interrelated to one another. So basically what he's getting at is that when you want to go down a field of study, you can't completely neglect any aspect of that overall field of study. Okay, so if you take the, uh, it's easiest for me to give examples of this in Islamic studies, but people who are specialists in other fields, you probably understand how this can apply to your field, right? If you're in Islamic studies, Say you're like interested in law. You can't just only do law and have nothing to do with theology. Not even a cursory look. He's saying at least you have to have a very preliminary look at it to understand what is the scope of the subject, what is its significance, what is its study, what is its purpose. At least you need to know that. These are like basic, basic level understanding of what the subject is. And if you have a long life, then you can start to delve into these things and you can build on each other. And all of the all of the areas of learning are interrelated. So he's saying all of the areas of learning are interrelated. Um, this has big consequences. 
big, big consequences. And again, I can only really speak to it in the realm of Islamic studies, and we've brought it up before, but this is a big problem in Islamic studies in the modern world, is that mm, how do I want to say this? A lot of people don't really study properly in the first place. This is number one. Number two is their course of study is not um, thorough and it's not broad enough. So, you know, they might skip corners in grammar or they might skip corners in rhetoric because, like, who wants to study rhetoric? Balagha. Balagha is so frustrating. It's even frustrating for Arabs most of the time. And then you, you don't want to, you know, so you skip some corners. Maybe you're not really interested in theology, so you skip corners in theology. But then, but then you really love law, right? But you can't properly study the theory of the law without having a good grasp of the theology because they overlap. Because a lot of the issues are interrelated. So now you have a problem because you think that you understood, but you didn't understand because you had a gap. There's a, there's a blind spot in your studies. Um, so he's saying that these things are interrelated. That's why, you know, I, I didn't do it, but I prefer the old Azhar system. Because, you know, I like old systems that they don't play games and they make everything clear. <laughs> you know, <laughs> the old system was you study all of the subjects and you master every subject. All of the 12 primary subjects of Islamic studies, you master all of them. And if you master all of them, then you graduate. And if you don't, you don't. <laughs> That's it. There's only, there's only one level of graduation. There's no, like, confusion in the whole thing. Right? It's either either you mastered it or you didn't. And if you mastered it and you did all of that, then you'll be tested orally by a panel of the of the scholars of the institution. And if you pass, then it will be publicly known and accepted that you are from the people of knowledge. There's no there's no ambiguity, you know. But now it's like you do one program, you get one degree. Like Sharia, I told people all the time in Sharia, I was in Sharia. You do a lot of fiqh, you know, a lot of fiqh. Oh my God, it's like your madhab and comparative and contemporary issues and commentary of the Qur'an only on issues that deal with law and commentary on the hadith only on issues that deal with law like it's only on only on these things right and it's like insane but you don't do any theology mashallah. you don't do any theology theology is like one semester it's not good their assumption is that you're going to study outside that's the assumption, is that you're just going to use this to kind of guide you. And if you're a serious student, you're going to go outside and study it anyways. Right? But anyways, the point is to have a familiarity with the various sciences. This is true, for example, also for people like people sometimes ask, uh, I want to go into, it's a big thing now, everyone wants to do therapy, which is a good field. I want to go into therapy and I want to help people and so on and so forth. What should I, you know? But I want to like make sure I have a Muslim lens to it. Like, what can I read? And I'm like, yeah, you can, have to <laughs> you can read the whole room. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> we'll lock you in, turn the cameras on so you can't like steal anything and you could just stay there. Because, uh, yeah, like there's things you can, you can learn, but the first thing you have to do is you have to get a basic foundation in the general is Islamic studies. Because otherwise you're going to have holes you don't know that you have them in the first place. Like, yeah, you could just spend all of your efforts reading Tezkiyah and spirituality and so on and so forth because, like, there's overlap between a lot of issues in spirituality and mental health, right? But you're going to have gaps. 
you know, going to be, you won't even know you have them. So, uh, and that's okay. So no, there's nothing wrong with that, is to just take time and pursue these things. Uh, the sixth responsibility ties to the one before it. And the judicious path is to pursue in each field the best it has to offer, since a lifetime generally does not allow one to pursue the totality of the sciences. <laughs> a lifetime. So he says, if you have a lifetime, you won't be able to study everything. So what do you have to do? You have to figure out what's the best thing to study in each in each topic. And that's that's usually known. Like that's over the centuries. There's texts that are known. Like this is. So that's why sometimes people say, you know, they use that whole uh, when the uh, the Mongols invaded Baghdad, and they say that they they killed so many people and they destroyed so many books that one of the rivers ran red with blood and the other one ran black with ink, mm -hmm. right? And so much of the Muslim libraries were destroyed and so on and so forth. So like, then people will take that to say like, and so much of our deen was lost. So like, how can we even trust what we have now? That's the jump they make, right? Uh, first of all, like I said earlier, the scholarly community was always international. So any text that was primary in the sense that like you have to know this text and this is a relied upon text and it's something that has information that's absolutely you cannot do without it will inevitably be in multiple places. Just that's the way it works. It will, it will be and it will be in their heads. Right, like there's people that we saw in Egypt. You could just like drop parachute them into anywhere in the world, and you have an uh, you have an instant university. Just like drop them, they pull the thing, and as soon as they land, it's like, alhamdulillah, you have a PhD program. Just got here. <laughs> like just go sit at the person's feet, and you're good to go. It's all in their head. They don't need any books, anything. Right, so the people were like that. But on top of it, anything like in every field, it's like that. Right, there's things that are indispensable in the field, and then there's like side things. And those side things, yeah, like some, maybe there were some amazing books that were lost. But they're not like the science itself wasn't lost, the knowledge itself wasn't lost, the core of it, right? So what he's getting at is that you pursue the best that it has to offer. So this is like, you know, again, the examples that are clear to me are like, for example, someone wants to study Hadith sciences. There's literally, you go into a bookstore, you can find 50 books on Hadith sciences. And you could read all of them, or you could just like read one of them properly. That's actually the one that's really dependable and so on. And if you want to specialize, you can read more later. But that's what you need to know. So you take, learn the, the core of the thing and then move on. Uh, one of the things that was good about the Islamic sciences is that there is a very clear hierarchy of how one develops in the field and how that builds on what came before it. So what it does is it roots the knowledge such that you... Um, it, it fortifies everything together. So, you know, it's when you take what's best. So if you say, for example, like, we used to read on Thursday nights from the end of an Kharida of Imam al-Dardir, rahimahullah. The Kharida of Imam al-Dardir, you studied in elementary school. Right? But the comment, his commentary on that, now you're getting to, like, a high school level text. Like a strong high school level text. And if you read the commentary on the commentary now, that's a college level text. Mm -hmm. And some of the commentaries on the commentary are graduate level texts. Mm -hmm. And it's all on the same original text. So you're never going to forget the actual foundation that was, when he says the best part, the best part was that foundation. Because everything was built off of that. 
And then this is how they also, like, sometimes you see scholars and they're, they're explaining things. You're like, how do they do that? Part of it was that because that's the way that the study is, the, um, like, the original text serves as a mnemonic device for those other layers. Mm -hmm. So automatically when you see the original one, you remember the three commentaries that you've read without even having to see them. And that's why usually like when people teach, when you go to the classes and people teach and stuff, usually they're reading the small one. And then, you know, they they move on. All right, enough of that. I think I'm losing you guys, going into too many details. Seventh responsibility is not to delve into all the various fields of knowledge at once. Rather, one should pay attention to the order of things, beginning with what is foremost importance, then the next in importance, and so on. And they should not delve into any field of study until they have sufficiently mastered the preceding field. So, he's basically saying, don't do it all at once. So just as we said, like when you're in one field of study, you don't go into all of the debates and stuff in that field because you'll forget the foundations of it. Same thing applies to the fields themselves. Like you don't do 10 subjects at once because you're not going to remember any of them. Actually, Imam Shokani, who is a great scholar in Yemen, he has a book on seeking knowledge. And it's really interesting, one of the things he says there, he says that anyone who's going to seek knowledge, they should intend to reach the level of a mujtahid. <laughs> like if they're going to do it, they should intend to reach the highest level you can possibly reach, just to understand all of the disciplines and so on. He says, if that's your intent, here's your curriculum. And he gives a, and he starts with grammar. And he says, you do this one, then you do this one, then you do it. Basically, he takes you from zero to a scholar of grammar. Then after grammar, he takes you from zero to a scholar in morphology. Then from zero to a scholar in rhetoric. Zero to a scholar in literature. Right? He doesn't do... And then he takes you like in the uh, other sciences and so on. Fiqh doesn't come until the very end. Because he's, this is not... This is a different course of study. It's not what normal people do. <laughs> and he said, because if you did everything that came before this, then the fiqh is just telling you what you already know. Because the fiqh is all of the scholars and their opinions and stuff, they're just applying everything you just studied to the text. And you just already did that. So it's just confirming what you already know and like telling you where they agreed and stuff like that. Point is you can take things step by step and it will build on each other. Number eight, because we want to finish all of them, is to understand the manner in which things are ascertained, so sciences are ascertained. So he makes this point here, basically that uh, knowledge is ranked according to uh, the quality of its fruit or according to the reliability of its proof. So it says it's, it's ranked according to the quality of its fruit or the reliability of its proof. So he gives, for example, uh, if you were to say like the science of religion or the science of medicine. Both of them have good fruits, but one fruit relates to the health of the person in the next life and one of them relates to the health of the person in this life so the religious knowledge would take precedence over the medical knowledge because of the the nature of the fruit then he says for example but what about uh, mathematics and astrology he says ma mathematics is more noble because its proofs are more clear than the proofs of astrology so he's just giving you this different breakdown um, you know Anyways, that's number eight. Number nine is that the person should intend at each moment, uh, I mean, the ninth responsibility of the student is for the intention of the student at each moment to be the enhancement of his inner state and its adornment with the virtues of excellent character. 
and in the imminent future it should be proximity to God so basically he's saying when you learn you intend that the point of this learning is to purify, to better myself and to come close to God and he kind of puts a hierarchy in that in the sense that like coming close to God is contingent upon purifying oneself because otherwise all of those things that are inside of the person get in the way so in the course of the study they're going through these things and they're seeking proximity to God and they'll get closer and closer and then the tenth responsibility is for the student to understand the relationship of the sciences to the goal being sought so basically what he's saying is that the end goal of all of this learning is to know God and so when we're studying any field of study then we should understand that that's where we're going and there could be there could be uh, lower goals too right so like and and this is really important also in Islamic studies because you know this stuff is endless so you can fall into all kinds of rabbit holes and you have to ask yourself like okay why am I actually doing this <laughs> am I doing this to know God am I doing it to help the people am I doing it for what right and because sometimes the thing that you're falling into like it's not really going to help the people and it's not really making you feel closer to God it's just you feel more like qualified in your field of study or whatever it might be but it's it's kind of like you know extreme sometimes some of these things maybe if that's you know but things have to be put in their right place why am i doing it and how is it how is it connecting to the overall goal sallallahu alaihi wasallam muhammad anyone have any comments questions observations on this yes Yeah, that's when we were talking about light and that statement of knowledge is light in the heart. Yeah. It's not stuff that it's not yeah. different contexts that they're in evoking it in mm -hmm. um, I think there's, there's multiple reasons why you see that repetition that could be one of them another one could be that it's just something that's universally true and so you're gonna see it over and over again um, or it could be something that's essential so it, it repeats itself regardless of context actually um, so yeah Absolutely. Mm -hmm. That's the way it should be. That's the way it should be. I'm still way down here. That's the way it should be. Yeah, like we said, there's never any... You know, the, the acquisition of knowledge, and part of what he's getting at, the acquisition of knowledge is not a materialist endeavor. Right? Like, it's, it's, a, it's a spiritual endeavor. If it's materialist, it's basically like a horizontal thing. You just add more, it gets bigger. 
But if it's a spiritual thing, there's a vertical plane to it. So you can hear the same thing, but you're not in the same place. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that's part of, like, actually engaging with the material. And uh, it's that story that we always tell about the student who went to, what saw his shaykh, he said, Salaamu Alaikum Alaikum Salaam. Sheikh said, how are you doing? He's like, uh, how, what's going on, you know? He said, uh, same old, same old. Sheikh said, Astaghfirullah, and turned around and walked away. He <laughs> 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 told him that nothing's ever the same. No, nothing's ever the same. So for you, and that's like a, ba he's trying to teach him a basic principle in Aqidah too, is that nothing's ever the same. Because Allah is creating in every single moment. So it's not the same. So even if you feel like it's the same, don't say that it's the same, because it's not the same. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes. That it's almost like these are all steps kind of telling the student to just be humble in a sense because your first one right starts off as you know purify the soul so start with reflection and then the next one is you know, get away from home get away from yourself essentially like dispel your ego the next one about not connecting parents and the rest about like mastering full fields not ignoring whatever so would it be accurate to say that essentially the overarching theme of it would be to and humble and you just the ego? Um, I mean, probably. Those are, those are definitely universal themes. Um, to be humble and dispel the ego. ego. I mean, they go together. So, one of the, <coughs> as, we, as we always remind ourselves and others, is that one of the hallmarks, so to speak, of Muslim scholarship is humility. That, uh, you know, it cannot be any other way. It cannot be any other way. Sometimes people will be very strong. Sometimes they might try to get across a certain point, or they might have to, as we talked about yesterday, show some level of strength in the face of someone who's being arrogant. We had that yesterday about the At-Takabbur ala al-Mutakabbir Sadaqah that to, to kind of like puff oneself up in front of an arrogant person is an act of charity yeah. <laughs> you know that sometimes like they'll have to do those kind of things but it's not out of it's not actually out of arrogance it's it's out of like respect for the field respect for the knowledge respect for what they what they represent you know it's not actually about them um, and so that's a Ideally, I mean, for some people, it's definitely about them. <laughs> but when we're talking about like true, like what is true scholarship? That's true scholarship. It's not about them. There has to be humility. There has to be the overcoming of the ego. Um, are essential, absolutely essential. Otherwise, you know, the Prophet ﷺ told us what that who were one of the first people thrown into hellfire is who? It's a person of knowledge. They said, why did you seek the knowledge? And they said, I sought the knowledge to, you know, glorify you and so on and so forth. I said, no, you sought the knowledge so that people would say that you were knowledgeable. And they said it. So you got what you wanted. Now you can go to hell. Literally. That's, that's literally what the statement says. Right? And the same thing for the mujahid, the one who fights in the way of Allah. So why did you fight? And they say, we fought so that the word of Allah can be raised high. And he says, no, you fought so that people would say that you were courageous. And they said that you were courageous. And now you can go to hell. And for the, for the charitable person, 
that why did you give charity? I give charity so that I could help people and so on and so on. He said, no, you gave charity so that people would say that you were generous. And they said that you're generous. And Ahlan bikum fi jahannam. You know, like this is, it's really scary. Yeah. Absolutely, always. Always, yeah. Allah forgive us. Allah forgive us. Hmm. Anyone else have anything? Doctor Latif. Regarding that cleansing the heart or purifying the heart, Hafiz says a poem, Hana Hali from Jala Tamanzele Janan Shavan. Kin Havas Namakan Jan Del Jai Lashkar Mekana. Empty the house so that it becomes the abode of the beloved. Because the temptation and the desire makes the heart like the mm. armica. It occupies the heart like the armica. Mm. It takes us, it, it, it occupies it. Yeah. Hafiz, mashallah. To be able to read Hafiz and they're like, oof. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. So, Rumi, regarding the skills and knowledge, uh, the usefulness and the essential knowledge and skills in life tells the story of a, a, a grammarian a grammarian uh, the, scar, the teacher of grammar Nahwi, Nahwi yeah. travels on the boat uh, and, uh, and uh, after a while he asked the uh, sailor uh, do you know Nahu? do you know anything about Nahu? He says, no, I have no knowledge of Nahu. I don't know what Nahu is, what grammar is. And he said, you wasted half of your life. <laughs> After a while, they sail and further, and there is a storm. <laughs> and and the, the, the boat is about to capsize, and they are at the point to drown. And the sailor asked the teacher, Do you, can you swim? He said, no. He said, you wasted all your life. <laughs> 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 yeah. Yeah, you wasted all your life. <laughs> this is the thing, right? Like, you, you study all of these things, right? For the sake of Islam, to teach people, whatever, whatever, whatever. And all you do is become more arrogant and more arrogant and more arrogant. You wasted all your life. No, you were better off like cleaning a bathroom and serving people tea. <laughs> it would have been better, <laughs> you know. So, you know, Allah help us. Inshallah. Okay, let's take a few minute break and then we'll uh, start the.